Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been and it always will be. Welcome to White Lion Fever. I'm Steve Mascord, and our first guest, you've heard him on the last two shows. If you've been listening, I hope you have. It's Dirk Sauer from Ed Guy. How are you, Dirk? Hey, guys. How are you? I'm pretty good. Welcome to the program, everyone else, and welcome back to Dirk. Um, now, I, I just any time we read about uh, Ed Guy now, there's usually something about Avantasia in the story, you know? It's like it's a two-headed beast almost. Is that... Um, I mean, one band dictates what the other does almost at the moment. Is that a comfortable, seamless uh, thing, or is there always a bit of push and pull there? I think it's a push and pull thing, I would say. Because, I mean, um, if there wouldn't have been Edgar, there wouldn't have been Avantasia, and uh, Avantasia, on the other hand, helps Edgar here and there. Um, I, I think it's a good thing. In, in total, it's absolutely working, and it's great like that. I mean, uh, Avantasia is is more more open to to more to a bigger audience because it's it's a bit a different kind of music and with all those different singers um gets a bit more attention here and there mm. um but also also i think it's it's it can coexist pretty well mm. Mm. so is it um is it sort of in any way preventing you from recording new music i mean have you already got plans to go in this, the, we're, we're talking about Monuments, which is a compilation with a new song and some videos and stuff. But um, do you have plans to go and record like a whole new record at the moment? Or oh, there are no real plans right now. I mean, uh, we didn't even plan to record new songs for the for the new <laughs> for the best of for Monuments, but it came like that, and the turnout is pretty good. Right. And um, but we want to to finish this celebration year now, and uh, then we'll decide if we go on with a new album or whatever yeah. there haven't been any plans so far you, you you're sort of not a political band and deliberately so uh but these are kind of troubling times which we t- touched on in the first part of our interview and and germany's right at the center of that whole immigration uh debate um do, do, does the temptation to become political um get bigger like do you, do you feel more tempted do you feel moved by by current events to maybe try to address things I'm not sure if 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 this is the right thing for for uh, if if bands are the. I mean, of course, it's it's good to to do a statement, especially with this concert in in Manchester last week or a couple of days ago, which is brilliant. Or if you name like I think Bono, for example, is a pretty pretty political guy, and it's it's good that they have it. But at some point, we are there to entertain, and so. I think one of the biggest things that we should do is people give a good time and and go to a show and have a good time, which is hard if you if you have to if you go to Rock and Ring for example. Mm. And um, my wife's brother was there, and they had to leave the festival area Friday, so they yeah. just for security reasons. And it's good like that, but I don't feel good if you just can't. Do what you feel to do. It's it's um, it's wrong, and this is a global problem. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a not a. And I'm not sure if 
if we as a band uh, can work on a solution, you know. Mm. I mean, of course, we can spread the word, but it's it's. I think it's hard. It's right. a political thing, and they should really take care of it. But for some reason, it just doesn't work. <laughs> for those of us who don't, and, uh, sorry, sorry. No, you continue what you were saying. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my next question. For those of us who don't sort of live in Germany, I mean, we, we I guess that sometimes we get the impression that metal is mainstream there, that it is it is kind of all over the radio and all over the TV, and, and it's it's like it used to be in, in, I don't know, America or Australia or, or England. I guess it's not really like that, is it? It's just there's no, a lot of support. No, it's definitely for it. not. I mean, mm. of course, there are some cool radio stations here and there, but it's, I mean, and Wacken, for example, is so big that it, it has to be on the mainstream media, but if you have, like, TV shows and stuff, it's not like uh, metal is there everywhere. But it's, the funny thing is that it's, media-wise, it's still, in a way, underground, but it's, the scene is just so huge. Mm. I mean, it's it's just, uh, you can play a lot of shows here, there are so many festivals, so there must be, like, hundred thousands of or millions of metalheads in Germany, but for some reason it's not fashionable. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It never will be. In many ways, that's <laughs> probably part of the attraction for a lot of people. You know, um, the last question. I'm sure you get this every interview, every second interview, but I've got to ask anyway. Um, does your, your maths teacher is he like famous now? <laughs> is he like? I mean, does he <laughs> sign? Does he sign autographs? Has he got a Facebook page? You know, like um, I mean. Uh, because obviously the name it catches people by surprise, doesn't it? I guess even to this day, people might think it's you're some sort of middle American, Americana acoustic singer songwriter when they when they see the name. You know what I mean? So it's it's quite yeah. a, it's a point of difference. No, no, he's not at all. I think I I'm not, I don't even know he's, if he's still alive. I haven't met him for <laughs> like twenty years now when I, when I left school, and uh, I I think he was aware of what we've done and that it came up out of his name but he wasn't really into it I think so um, <laughs> he can do whatever he wants and nobody cares <laughs> <laughs> okay um, it's really been really nice of you to join us Dirk and uh, it's it's just flown by I've got a notepad full of questions and we've only got about a couple yeah we're running out of time we're running out of time so can we just have another song uh, well then let's have um, let's have Love Tiger for example Okay. From the last record. Come on, come on. 
there, this is Dirk from Edguy, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Stay tuned. We are backstage at the uh, beautifully appointed and spacious uh, <laughs> Underworld in Camden, and I have uh, three members of Little Caesar, and what I'll do is I'll explain to them, I'll get them to introduce themselves, uh, listeners, and then it'll be your job to remember who's who from, uh, and recognise their voices. So, uh, guys, who, who's with us? I'm Tom. Okay. I'm Mark. Lauren. Okay. And guys, um, this is the first show in England, and I, I guess it's a, it's a weird thing because I've been trying to get hold of Ron for quite a, quite a while, and he's still out off playing road manager, so I still didn't get him. <laughs> I'll have to do that uh, for next time, but it's great. To, it's unexpected uh, bonus to speak to th- uh, three guys at once. But um, I guess um, the big thing is you sign with an Australian label, and I'm Australian, so that's uh, pretty exciting. Um, what's the background to uh, you signing with Golden Robot? Um, I think uh, it came about through the artist relations consultant or manager, Derek Shulman, who's actually English, that, uh, that he's got a long history in the music business, and somehow he brought the idea of Little Caesar going to Golden Robot. There was a few other labels that we were talking to, but the fact that Golden Robot is Australian... And Rose Tattoo is on the label. It's like sounded fucking cool to us, you know. And they've been great so far. So we're, you know, we're excited about it. And Rose Tattoo are actually here in Europe uh, in June. Um, and I, 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 I miss all those bands. The thing I miss most about Oz is, uh, is, is some of those bands. But um, so tell me what was going on before, like before that, you were just hunting around for a label, or were you going to record anyway? And, and what was it? What was what was it, before you came to this sort of deal? What was the situation with the band? I'm the new guy, so yeah, I yeah, would yeah. ask one of them. This was my first show. Oh, <laughs> we were we were long overdue to get get some new music together. I mean, it had been. I, I still like can't believe how long ago we did American Dream. I mean, to me, it just sort of seems like a couple of years when, in fact, it was probably about five years ago mm-hmm. and uh yeah we were just in a point where like we got to get some music together and actually the uh the beginnings of this this record actually are a couple of years old lauren uh Farrell and i started working on the material in the studio just woodshedding the three of us and um just started you know piecing this stuff together um you know, we it hoped we would be in the studio a lot sooner than we were, but you know, usually we, we have a history of going through uh, guitar players, mm. and uh, <laughs> and it seemed like there'd be a personnel issue to deal with, and we would need to have a person in place because there was always a tour to get ready for. But you know, finally it all came together. Obviously, you know, we got a great player and, and Mark who came a recommendation of a good friend of ours, Paul Hill, who's an amazing musician in his own right and uh you know we had the window it's like we got to just get this thing done we got Mm -hmm. the songs and you know to go out there and not with without new music for such a long period of time you know we felt like you know we're cheating ourselves we're we're cheating the people that want to hear new caesar music so we did it well, let's uh, maybe ask you about how this uh, happened. I mean, Little Caesar, some great names, Apache, Pharaoh, like Kiss would kill for names like that. So <laughs> you're just Mark. Earl Slick. <laughs> hey, Earl Slick, what a name. So how did you, um, how did you uh, sort of uh, end up 
in Little Caesar. And were you a fan of the band before, and were you aware of them uh, back in the day? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're a great band and just great music, great songs. You can't miss mm-hmm. it. And uh, a couple of years ago, I think we had initially started talking about getting together, mm-hmm. and uh, they had already had stuff going on, so mm-hmm. it kind of fell to the wayside. And then... Uh, I, about five or six months ago, uh, Paul Ill, our, our mutual friend, had talked to Lauren, and I think the rest of. I, I, I had the idea because, like, we started the album, and because uh, we we knew that we needed to get in the studio, and Bruce Whitkin produced it, and he mm-hmm. plays guitar and keys and stuff, and he started playing uh, on a few tracks, and then we realized uh, that we really needed somebody to join the band, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember. Two years ago, Paul had said, Mark, and, and I told Ron and the guy, they go, what about Mark? And it was like, it was it was like, you know, if there ever was anything like perfect timing, it, it was, and uh, and he's a great guy, and, and he, as soon as we jammed with him, you know, it was like, oh yeah, there's our Mick Taylor, Billy Gibbons, Mick Ralphs, all wrapped up in one, so, uh, yeah. I said, we're, I said we're going to have a song, um, so... Uh, I don't know who wants to pick the first song. Maybe maybe one each. Oh, you know what? I'll start it with something that you could maybe pull from the record, the new single. Yep. Time enough for that.
Hey, this is Ron Young and the boys from Little Caesar, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to White Line Fever. Final part of our interview with Whitfield Crane from Ugly Kid Joe. I want to thank him for being on the program. Last couple of questions. I think we're about to run over time, Whit. But um, the, the the first thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, obviously it's kind of it's now an industry standard now to play a classic album in its entirety um, um, on a tour. Uh-huh. Is do you think we'll ever see bands actually the next step might be attempting to play their entire back catalogue on a tour? You know, playing the successful album in a cat big in a big market, playing the obscure album in a smaller market, and having fans follow them around. It's, I guess it's an extra way to make money, a bit of repeat business. But how much music can you actually learn and and play on on a given tour? Do you think? Mm, it would depend on the band, mm. and it would it would also depend on the resolve of the band, right? Mm. Mm. Like like if if. If, if a band was like, I mean, it also depends on the catalog. Like, mm. if you have 15 albums, like, if you're Rush, yeah. you're not going to, I don't, I can't imagine it happening. Um, you know, but if you're Guns N' Roses, you could do it. They don't mm. have that much material, you know, compared to Metallica. So <laughs> it, would be, it would depend on some variables. Uh, I think anything can happen. Mm. Um, you know, I honestly think that, that, that you kind of pick, like, one, one, one direction, yeah. one way to flow, like, and that would probably just be a singular album. But it's not mm. a bad idea. It could be done. No yeah, problem. I wonder which city would get the spaghetti incident and which city would get Chinese democracy. It's pretty interesting, actually. But um, the other the other question I want to ask it would you... Be a, it would be interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is it St. Louis? They've got a bad rep- they've got a bad relationship with St. Louis. Maybe they give them sort of uh, Chinese democracy. But um, the the other question I want to ask, I've never asked anyone this before, but I was doing some research before um, this interview. And uh, I saw that you're on basically every website, particularly Australian website. And I know you must be doing a dozen interviews today, a dozen interviews yesterday. And I always wonder, does it ever get weird? Like, because you're not dealing with professional journalists, you're dealing with hobbyists, borderline fans. So do do you ever get the border crossed? Do you ever get people sending you texts after you've done the interviews and ringing you late at night and getting obsessive? Do you ever get any weirdness or inappropriateness when you're doing so many interviews? Um, that's a good question, but so far, so, so good. No, that hasn't happened. <laughs> right. Um, that is a good question. Wow. <laughs> no, um, no, I treat, uh, I treat every interview the same. It mm-hmm. could be a massive thing or fanzine or it's just people. We're just people. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I play in a rock band and I want to tour and I want to, you know, I want to celebrate life through music and mm. get rad, you know, mm. and, and you, you love music just like I love it. Mm-hmm. So you do your thing. I do my thing. We meet in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so far, so good as far as like, People haven't got too weird. I mean, in fact, nobody's gotten weird at all. We get some weird things, but not not through that particular channel. Right, right. What sort of weird stuff do you get? Just from fans? Like, uh, I read I read about the tattoos, you know, people getting the, your signature tattooed on their arms. Is that one of the weirdest things you get from fans? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, well, I don't know if it's weird. It's uncomfortable. Because I, I, mean, I, don't, I mean, I'm not against tattoos, but I don't, I don't have any tattoos. Yeah, yeah. So when you're, you know... You're doing your thing, and you know. I mean, I'm just a working musician. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Like, I don't. You know, I'm not that special. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, when you have someone that, that you know, they're, they're, their eyes are bugging out, they're like, they're really excited about this band. That's cool. I mean, yeah. I like my band, but um, you know, I, I try to talk people off the cliff. I'm like, really? You, do you really want this tattoo? Yeah, and yeah. they really do. Yeah, <laughs> and they'll get, and they'll go get the tat, and then then come back to the next show and like show it to me, and I'll be like, wow. Yeah, that's really intense. Um, I guess I so, love yeah, you. That's pretty, I love you and I love your band is not a great conversation starter, is it? Because, like, what do you say back? You know what I mean? I guess you've had it for uh, 
30 years, you know, so you probably have a standard response, but it's not, not really the best conducive to a great conversation, is it, when someone starts by saying, I'm a fan, I've been a fan for years, like, what do you say back? You know what I mean? Like, no, I, I, I don't, I don't mind that. That's, that's, that's love. That's mm. great. Like, mm. I'm like, wow, thank you. Mm-hmm. What, what's your name? How yeah, are you? Yeah. Well, what do you do? Like, it's, it's actually pretty good in for me um, because it's pure. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make stuff like that. It's like, wow. You know, like I'm, I'm grateful. I'm like, wow, mm. really cool. What is your name? You know, yeah, what, yeah. what do you do? What do you live at? You know, tell me about it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, I, I don't, I don't mind that at all. It's, mm. like, it's actually good for me. Okay. Okay. Let's have uh let oh, last question. Um, recording plans. And then, um, and then I guess the final song. And I want to thank you for being on being on the show. Okay, cool. Uh, recording plans would be, and that's this is predicated on Dave Portman being the guitar player. Dave Portman's also, uh, you know, in the in the fifteen years we didn't play, he became one of the most uh, sought after producers in the yep. world. So, funny enough, he he is that. Like he's a badass in that discipline, but he's also our friend and our guitar player. And funny enough, he's our producer. So mm. we're able to go do that at the snap of a finger or on top of a hat so we'll probably go i would think probably let me think about it probably um somewhere in 2018 we'll, yep. we'll go to louisiana where he's stationed and jump in the studio and get creative without a doubt cool what song can we play to finish up well considering we're celebrating the 25 year anniversary of america least wanted mm. and considering we're coming to the great country of australia and crushing these songs. <laughs> Let's take it all the way back to the Harry Chapin classic. This is called Cats in the Cradle. My child arrived just the other day Came to the world in the usual way But there are planes to catch and bills to pay He learned to walk while I was away Talking for a minute and as a good He said I'm gonna be like you, Dad. You know I'm gonna be like you And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon Little boy blue and the man on the moon When you come in on so I don't know when We get together then You know we'll have a good time Man on the moon When you're coming home, son, I 
to the program this is the middle bit um uh, where we have a, a long chat and um i've got to do a couple of plugs before we introduce our guest uh and um you know, i've got a book out called touchstones um i've got a merch company mascot browns mascotbrowns.com and i'll now welcome to episode 100 justin quirk how are you justin i'm great steve thanks for having me on the show no no worries uh, now we are in the national gallery here in london which isn't my normal sort of haunt but um uh we're actually here to talk about a book but um, not mine. Uh, we're here to talk about yours, uh, and I've heard about it through uh, Classic Rock. And would you like to explain to the listeners what you're doing? I'm, uh, I'm currently in the midst of crowdfunding. There's a new book project called Nothing But a Good Time, mm-hmm. and the, the elevator pitch on it, this is the cultural history of America in the 80s told through glam metal, hair mm-hmm. metal, the spandex era, the uh, pantomime metal. Well, it goes by different names, but essentially we're talking 83 to 91, mm-hmm. that golden era of... Motley Crue, Skid Row, Poison, Warrant, Death Leopard, probably the leading lights in it, LA Guns, Hanoi Rocks, all that period. But the starting point for it was, I remember this stuff when I was a kid, you know, I was a classic sort of suburban teen in England, I was obsessed with this stuff, you know, it was, it bore no relation to my own life, I lived in a very quiet, dull suburb of London, and there seemed to be this other world, you know, top hats, whiskey, women, you know, I'm 13 at this point, I haven't spoken to a woman in my life at this time, and absolutely loved this stuff and the interesting thing was is you realised when you got into it you thought you were the only person you thought it was this niche thing it was like the outsider's music this stuff is huge you know you realise as soon as you start seeing these bands you're like well hang on um, I thought this was this weird underground thing they're selling out Wembley Stadium they're selling out Wembley Arena they're selling out Hammersmith Odeon for five nights massive commercial concern 1991 the whole thing just collapses under its own weight you know it's very unusual for any genre of music that it's very, very tightly bookended. You know, really, the lines I draw is 83, Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil. I think is probably not necessarily the first record that sounds like glam, but it sounds like glam and it also looks like glam. You know, it's a very visual medium. I think there's records that precede it slightly. There's, you can maybe go back to some of the Kiss records in the 70s, some of the stuff Rainbow was doing in the early 80s, Quiet Riot, maybe people like that. But for the whole package, I think it's saying 83, Motley Crue. This stuff is just dominates from 83 to 91. And then, seemingly overnight, 
the whole thing struck dead. This is like the musical equivalent of, you know, the asteroid strike hitting the dinosaurs. You know, no trace of this stuff is left. I was working in a guitar shop at the time, and I literally remember in the space of a fortnight, you had guys that were coming in in, like, you had the, the, the Def Leppard battle jacket, mm-hmm. you know, the Union Jack vest, the massive white trainers. I guess you had the equivalent in Oz. I'm not sure what it would, uh, what it would have been. Two weeks later, it's lumberjack shirts, Converse. <laughs> yeah. They've had like the road to Damascus, Nirvana mer- moment, and they've put away the childish things. And I remember there was a thing where Gene Simmons actually, I think it was during the Carnival of Souls era, he met Pearl Jam or something. And they said they could still see the folds in his flannelette shirt. He'd just just taken out of the packet. And it's, it's just wrong. Like the, the idea of Gene Simmons in like trying to rock like a lumberjack gear is like it's just horrible. It's like seeing a dad trying to dress like that or something. But you know, Gene should be Gene at all times. And, uh, but this was kind of my starting point. So I was, you know, I'm. I was going back to these records and looking at them, and yeah, I still listen to these guys and this music, and yeah, I still have other things, but this has kind of been a constant. And I thought, well, isn't it weird that so many people were into this music at the time, and you never ever encounter anybody who goes, do you know what? I was really into Docker. You know, do you know what? Like, yeah, Skid Row in '91, one of the best gigs I've thought. Nobody, and I was like, well, someone must have been. Where did this all go? It's like this thing just vanished off the face of the earth. So, and I thought, well, that's interesting because. You know, we live in a culture which artistically is very, very backwards looking. You know, we're obsessed with nostalgia. You know, there's more, you know, we're now at the, the point in rock and roll's life where there's more past than there is present. You know, it's, it's all these being repackaged. And, and it seems like there is almost uniquely in music, glam metal is the one genre which is kind of immune to any kind of serious cultural reappraisal or rehabilitation. I thought, well, why is that? Because I'm thinking, you know, there's other kinds of music I've been interested in, you know, very kind of dumb, skinhead oi music. You know, people have written very seriously about that. People will go back and look at, you know, really basic early forms of techno, you know, Gabba, Happy Hardcore, you know, these things that were pretty peripheral at the time. And, you, and we'll go, well, okay, you know, that had that effect, which led to this, which led to this. And you can sort of look at them, you know, in quite a serious way. Nobody's going to go back and look at, uh, like, warrant in this way and I thought well why is this because the more I looked at this music I think what I find really interesting about it and I find you know it's I think it's part of getting older and you listen to a lot of music and I find as I get older in some ways the music itself interests me less and what interests me more is saying well why do we like the things we do you know why do these scenes suddenly appear out of nowhere you know, why Why did punk rock happen when it did? Why did the blues suddenly become really popular in white working class areas of England in the 50s and 60s? You know, these things that often don't seem to make a lot of uh, sense, but, you know, you join these dots and it becomes interesting. So I was going back and looking at this stuff, and I think the more you scratch the surface, the more depth I feel like there is to glam metal. And what, you know, this is a very condensed version of a kind of a book-length thesis, was... I think when you look at the, the culture that came out of America in the 70s, you know, America in the 70s is in a fairly terrible state, and you've got the tail end of Vietnam, you know, the country's going bankrupt, the cities are on fire, huge levels of political corruption, the like of which we haven't seen until, you know, probably the recent, recent period, and the culture that comes out reflects that. And I think if you look at what was, like, big mainstream American culture in the late 70s, you know, look at, like, the big films, you're talking, like... Jaws, Taxi Driver, The Towering Inferno, you know, there's this this idea that everyday life is, you know, something dangerous, you know, something's going to kill you that's lurking in the middle of suburbia 
and everything's you know very kind of grim and inward looking then Reagan comes in in the early 80s and there's this really kind of buoyant optimism you know he campaigns on the slogan it's morning in America again you know unemployment starts to go down you know they gradually see how the economy picks up and everything across the board in culture starts to get bigger both physically and artistically so you know really this is the era of you know the big Hollywood action films contemporary art goes completely blue chip you know it turns into these huge like Jeff Koons installations you know huge Gerhard Richter paintings things going for millions and millions of dollars you know that whole kind of Wall Street shoulder pads 80s culture you know everything gets bigger you know advertising gets bigger computer games you know see freedom royal that's fake like everything just takes on this huge culture but it's all a bit weird and overinflated when you look back on it it has this kind of slightly synthetic quality and i think broadly speaking glam metal functioned as kind of the musical wing of this mm-hmm. in that it's got that sort of slightly odd quality when you look back on it now where you go well it's all very kind of big and stadium sized but there's something a bit weird going on under the surface and I think as the 80s goes on it gradually curdles into something a bit darker and I think probably Guns N' Roses is the pivotal band in all this you know if you listen back to Appetite for Destruction what really set that apart as a record was there's something really genuinely dark and malevolent about it that's not Motley Crue doing Girls 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 it's not Warren doing Cherry Pie or whatever you know there's something genuinely quite out of control about that record and it still sounds like that now I think and I think that's the tipping point and there's probably an analogue there if you look at like the way culture and music changed in the late 60s you know very quickly in the 60s you went from you know flower children in San Francisco to 1969 the acid's gone a bit bad and people are getting killed at Altamont and you know it's all gone a bit dark and and I think, you know, just as the 60s ends with it all kind of falling in on itself and Jimi Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner and it's all drenched in feedback and it's all a bit grim, I think Axl Rose in his Stars and Stripes cycling shorts is that generation's equivalent. So, in short, so that's a very roundabout way of saying I thought it was a really interesting art form because on the one hand, nothing could be more American and yet... On the other hand, it all seems to be kind of pulling at the underbelly of America a bit and mm. saying there's something a bit unpleasant going on here. And you know, and I think for a British audience that really resonated because we had British glam in the 70s, which was very similar. In, it didn't really land in America commercially, but it was very similar in a lot of ways. You know, it was a response to a culture that was kind of falling to pieces economically. It was, you know, ugly working class blokes getting the makeup on and trying to be as shocking as possible. And also with both genres... Hello, D. Snyder. Who? <laughs> D. Snyder, but these guys, they're really good examples. You know, D, you know, I think by his own admission would say, you know, he's, uh, he's not a conventional looking guy and he made the most of it. But, but, you know, all those guys like, you know, D. Snyder, Blackie Lawless, like all these kind of cats, they were... They'd often been hacking around. They were, all, you know, a lot of them. They were obsessed with glam. You know, they came out of that kind of Alice Cooper tradition. You know, guys like, you know, Blackie Lawless is a great example, and you know, Nick Mars from Motley Crue. You know, they'd be kind of hacking around in the seventies. You know, trying to do something that was a bit like British glam, and it didn't really happen. And then, you know, in the eighties, they kind of find their feet, and it kind of mutates into this American version. And so, really, yeah, that, that's kind of what I want to look at is how for this very brief period this was kind of 
the musical wing of like American, yeah, the American cultural project, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, and it's it went out all over the world. Mm-hmm. You know, none of these bands were a domestic concern. You know, there were you know huge festivals in Japan, Latin mm-hmm. America. You know, these bands largely, I think, they're very uncredited with the fact that they broke MTV. Mm-hmm. You know, I think had you not had you know bands like Van Halen, Motley mm-hmm. Crue, I don't think of Bon Jovi. You know, great mm-hmm. example. MTV would have been nothing like the scale it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it really punched above its weight in that scale. So. I've just long thought it's culturally a really fascinating period. There's a story there to be told and almost no one's looked at it. Justin, um, Biff Byford from Saxon should be on this program, but their interview didn't tape, so I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. I'm going to pause this to make sure we've got that last ten minutes of gold, but I will allow you to uh, play a song before you come back. So what, give us a song. I've, I've got to go for Skid Row, Big Guns, possibly the best band I saw as a teenager. 1991, I saw them twice when I was 15. They blew the curfew. We ended up missing the train home. I nearly lost my toes to frostbite. I blame Sebastian back to this day, but hugely underrated band, slightly written out of the history of metal, but still now, go back to that debut album, throw it on, it stands up. We went to see them two weeks ago and uh, they, they're selling like a replica of the Big Guns t-shirts. I'm like, I really want one of those t-shirts. And my wife said, don't you think it's a bit sexist? And I'm like, have you been paying attention for the last two hours? Okay. <laughs>
Kiefer, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Okay, that was Skid Row. Uh, we're back with Justin talking about the, uh, his book, Nothing But A Good Time. I, I just wondered, what about the people who never got on board the grunge train? What about the people who go on the Monsters of Rock cruise every year? What about Eddie Trunk's listenership? To them, this, is, this isn't dead. It didn't disappear. It didn't disappear off the face of the earth. And also, I wanted to ask you about Fargo Rock City, you know, by Chuck Klosterman and, and Seb Hunter's book, uh, Hellbent for Leather. You know, they've kind of um, entered the same territory that you're talking about. So, I don't know, there's two questions which are more or less unrelated, but I'll, I'll ask you them both together. Well, going, going <laughs> first for the... Um the revival thing, I think it's it's a really good point. You're totally right in saying that the idea that it totally ended in 1991 has always been a little bit erroneous in that I think it's certainly lost a lot of its visibility. I mean, there was always there was always a scene which kept going. And I think you could make the argument that maybe as an underground genre, you know, that maybe that's sort of how it should have flourished, you know, all along. You know, it was a kind of outside of music. Um, I think what's really interesting now, though, is that, you know, these guys that have kept the flame going since then, I think you're starting to see, particularly in the live arena, a, re- a revival circuit which is healthier than I think anything I can remember in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not totally sure why that's happening now I think it may just be that nostalgia goes in cycles and I think we're now far away enough from you know the the first wave of all this stuff that people are going back and discovering this stuff without a lot of the cultural associations and baggage around it and they will just go back to something like Dream Warriors by Dokken and go look that's just an absolutely rock solid pop song you know and I think maybe people have forgotten what grunge was supposed to represent yeah. So it's not. So they don't remember it as a rebellion against hair metal anymore. The issues are kind of faded into history a little bit. You know? Yeah, I, I think yeah. there's a huge part of that, and I think there's also a younger, for a younger audience now, they don't absorb music in the same way that Gentlemen of Our Vintage did. And that, you know, I think if you're young now, you absorb things in a very flat way. You know, you get them through basically Spotify or Tidal, mm-hmm. and most kids I know at that age consume music in a very agnostic way you know they're just interested in that they either don't care or they possibly even don't know mm-hmm. when they go did this come out in 91 or 71 or anything yeah. it doesn't really mm-hmm. it doesn't really make any odds to them so I think Sean of its baggage it's maybe found a new audience um, I think it's also and you know let's, let's not be overly romantic there was a lot of dross back then I mean like any commercial juggernaut there were a lot of truly terrible glam metal bands you know I mean we don't need to offend anyone by calling out names but I think we all have our I fun. wasn't terribly excited when Pretty Boy Floyd put out a new record a couple of months ago I'll I, say that I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure even Pretty Boy Floyd themselves were being particularly excited by that but, but I think you know the guys who have kept going and the women who have kept going I, you know it's time has a, a way of sort of editing out you know the process of weeding out takes place I mean I've got to say I mean I saw Wasp about four months ago just before Christmas they did um, the revival tour for they were playing the Crimson Idol in its entirety Um, and I went with I got those pretty low expectations because you know the band now I think is Blackie Lawless plus three I guess younger kind of session guys Um, they're not they're luckily I don't think they're in a situation like Saxon where I believe there's still two rival Saxons it's like Saxon 1 and Saxon 2 like jazz you would have heard about that if it had a taped (laughs) (laughs) if only it would have been gold um, yeah I think it's it's Biff and the younger guys and then the original guys and a younger front band and they kind of balance out but um, but 
I went along, you know, this Wasp show with pretty low expectations and I thought, you know, the Crimson Idol isn't my favourite album. I'd rather have seen, you know, maybe the earlier stuff being played. I've got to say, they absolutely blew me away. They were astonishingly good live. They were, I mean, basically just incredibly disciplined, really heavy. I do not know what Blackie Laws has been doing to maintain his voice in the condition he has done, but I swear to God, he sounds better than he did when you look back at clips of him from like 85, 86. They were, I mean, I couldn't recommend seeing them enough, but... They sold out the forum in Kentish Town, you know, big theatre, you know, for any listeners who don't know it, probably, I don't know, two, two and a half thousand people, sold out for a couple of nights. Absolutely, you know, riotous response. And I was chatting to some guys there who were like, you know, have been seeing them over the years. And these guys were like, look, seriously, these are like the biggest crowds they've been playing to in 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. maybe. So there does appear to be that revival of interest. You said you saw Skid Row a couple of nights ago. Yeah, they're selling out. The, you know, these guys, they're not playing in the back rooms of pubs. You know, they're selling out decent venues again. So, you know, I think the guys that can put on a good show and are hanging in there are, I guess, you know, the ones that were kind of the cream of the crop, really. And, and I think in a weird way, also really mainstream pop music has helped some of these guys to notice something like Taylor Swift and Mariah Carey both covered their Leopard songs in their live sets you know they do Bring You On The Heartache and probably the best power ballad of the 80s hotly contested title but I'd say Bring It On The Heartbreak is the best on there um, and uh, Pour Some Sugar On Me and, and I think also you know in a weird way, even things like, you know, Pop Idol, X Factor shows, you know, and things like High School Musical, you know, the, the, the more chart-friendly end of kind of really soft metal, you know, you will get Bon Jovi songs and Journey songs and things cropping up in those shows. So, you know, you could go into a bar full of 21-year-olds now, and if they throw on, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name, that sort of song is now just part of, like, the canon. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, a completely mainstream and it, that's then I guess kind of a gateway drug for if you're listening to Slippery When Wet on Spotify it will point you towards other things and so I think that has kind of driven driven some of that interest Well you, unlike the two books I mentioned earlier I mean I mean, Chuck Hosterman got his whole career on that book, uh, Fargo Rock City Will the difference be that you won't be a character in this book? It'll just be a, a sort of academic appraisal yeah. of the subject? Or what, what, what will it be different, you know? The, the academic appraisal interests me a bit more. I mean, mm. the, the culture around it. And also it's the fact that my upbringing is astonishingly not interesting. I mean, I had, <laughs> I had a happy, stable, boring upbringing mm. to a degree which is almost difficult to fathom. Like, if you grew up in the, the outer reaches of Zone 6 in London, in a loving, stable family, you know, with nice people around you. That was essentially my upbringing, yeah, like, yeah. You know, which makes it, I guess, all the more laughable that I love this music about, you know, rebelling and, you know, telling your boss where to stick his job, you know, at a time when I literally had nothing to rebel about or complain about. Um, both those book, you made, books you mentioned, I've got to give a shout out to them because they are, you know, I read them when they came out. They're both fantastic pieces of writing. So, in very different ways. I mean, they're the honourable exceptions of two of the only writers who've taken a semi-serious, in-depth look at this. So, of the two, so, you know, for any readers who don't know them, so Chuck Klosterman grew up on a farm in rural North Dakota, Fargo Rock City. It's about, essentially, what it's like to be growing up in the early mid-80s as a fanatical Kiss, Def Leppard and Quiet Riot fan when 
you live on a farm in you know the Midwest. Um, Seb Hunter's book, Hellbent for Leather, is kind of the British equivalent. You know, he grows up in rural Hampshire. Uh, he's a couple years older than me, so he this stuff really kind of hits him square. You know, he gets the bug for ACDC when he's 11 at boarding school and then just goes completely down the rabbit hole. And um, They're both written slightly more as memoirs. You know, they have very interesting backstories for different reasons. You know, Klosterman's because he has this very strange kind of rural upbringing. Um, Seb Hunter has you know, this very poignant kind of... Um, kind of backstory in the book about his relationship with his father who I think is an alcoholic who tries to kind of manage his band but what they both tap into really well in Hunter's book particularly is there was kind of a rash of memoirs and biographical accounts that I think you could also lump in mainly more films that have looked at it so something like the Anvil documentary does this very well is Hunter's story is really that his band get to the absolute bottom rung of metal stardom like they get to like third on the bill at the marquee opening for some terrible band who have one <laughs> single out and that's kind of as high as they get and then literally they're on the verge this is, I guess it's like 1991 maybe yeah they all move to London they're all living in a squat somewhere it's all yeah it's a bit of an exercise in futility um, and then grunge hits and the whole thing just falls apart for them and and in a way, there's a really interesting subgenre within music about artists who almost kind of make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hunter's book is probably the best example, I think, of writing. Um, Luke Haynes, who's in the indie group The Auteurs, wrote a couple of absolutely fantastic books, um, Bad Vibes and Post Everything, which mm-hmm. were... He obviously succeeded to a slightly higher degree, but it's essentially his count of how he kind of invents Britpop and then sees all these kind of what he considers lesser lights like Blur and Oasis just kind of steaming through the inside but he's a fantastic writer genuinely funny very very acerbic Um, in the films I think uh the Anvil documentary is fantastic. I believe there's a documentary coming out about... Uh, Lips is actually on this episode, believe it or not. Oh, fantastic. Earlier. The listeners He's have already heard it. And, you know, he, <laughs> he just comes out... I mean, in that film, he really comes out of it as the embodiment of everything that is decent about metal. Mm-hmm. You know, those guys, by the end of the film, you are rooting for them so hard. Mm-hmm. And the bit where, you know, he's desperate for money, he's desperate to make all this happen, and he gets that terrible exploitative job in the telly sales, basically ripping off mm-hmm. old women, and he walks after two hours, because he's like, look, I don't care how desperate I am for money, you know, I need to look myself in the eye, I wouldn't let my kids do this. And that's the point where you're basically just punching the air for that guy, just saying, look, I don't care what your band did wrong, I don't care how many substandard records you might have put out, you know, you, des- you deserve a break at that point. And, and he's really, and you know, and again, you go back and they were, they just never got the breaks. You know, they they were a great band in some ways you know they made some awful decisions they were badly advised things didn't break in their favour like I understand there's a documentary coming out about Rothschild the British band who they're I think their biggest thing I think they toured they opened for Wasp in about 84, 85 but they were sort of like the British British version of Motley Crue I guess there's one of them I think the lead singer is a postman now but I think Rothschild are still going in some uh, some way, shape, or form. There's, uh, yeah, there's documentary about you know Thor. The Thor documentary is moving very good, and as a genre, it does seem to lend itself very well to these examinations of 
you know, in short, it's the idea that like, everyone succeeds in the same way and everyone fails differently. Yeah. So if you're looking at that kind of failure, that's always an interesting starting point for a story. It is now, um, but you're not. Now let's. Well, this will be the last question. So, the, the the crowdfunding bit is basically so you can live while you're writing the book, or is there are there expenses as far as travelling? You get, are you going to interview people, or is it more just like an assessment, uh, an academic type assessment, objective? Yeah. But it's, it's, um, and, and 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 when you finish answering the question, give yourself a plug. All the stuff people need to know. Okay. okay. It's now. a bit of both. Um, I mean, I think. I am doing quite a few interviews for the book, but what I'm more interested in is speaking to a lot of the people who haven't really been spoken to before. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been interesting with researching this book is the kind of people where, you know, friends of friends have gone, oh yeah, you should speak to this guy. I mean, the biggest one so far was a, a loose writing acquaintance of mine went, oh yeah, I used to be babysat when I was a kid by the guy that designed all the sleeves for Def Leppard. Yeah. And he's now retired and living in Brighton, but, you know, you put me in touch with him. Um, I got put in touch with someone whose friend had, very sadly, was in the crowd at Donington in 1988 and lost a friend in the stampede while Guns N' Roses were playing. I'm in touch with that guy who, to the best of my knowledge, has never been interviewed before, but he's got a very, you know, raw first-person account of what happened that day. Um, And I'm often interested in those people that were kind of, had like a worm's eye view of this scene, because at this stage in the game, you know, if... If you want to speak to, you know, Chris Holmes or someone from Boston, there are a lot of interviews out there with there's a lot of excellent material that you can draw on, Mm -hmm. you know, from the archive. And I've been going through a lot of kind of old magazines and back issues and interviews and research. Um, But in most cases, it's more a sort of cultural survey rather than... What I didn't want to do was write a kind of exhaustive, verbatim account of the Mm -hmm. genre, partly because... I don't. I wouldn't find it especially interesting, but secondly, because you're setting yourself up for failure. Because there's always going to be a band that you miss out that someone thinks should have included. There's always going to be someone who disagrees with you know your take. I mean, even just deciding what to call it as a genre is contentious enough. You know, I loosely go with glam metal, but I think that's kind of a broad umbrella for that era. You know, there are people who are like, well. If you're going to go with that title, you should only be including, you know, bands that came out of that scene around, like, Kazaris and the Cat House in LA, which, that's one take. I think you can broaden it out yeah, you know, yeah, more yeah. widely. I mean, I'm more interested, really, in everything that kind of came in its slipstream. Because I think, you know, I mean, talking about Def Leppard again, I think you could say they clearly were not a glam metal band to start with. But I think the prevailing trends had enough influence on them that by 85, 86, they sound like a yeah, hair yeah, band. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, you know, there's old bands like Aerosmith, I think, reinvented themselves as a hair band, Heart, all those kind of guys. Whitesnake. Whitesnake are the cut. I mean, they literally, you know, rebooted themselves yeah, yeah. completely. With And key question, though, which version of Whitesnake would you choose? The Mark 1 or Mark 2? Um, 1987. You know, because that's my vintage. You know, so I, I like I like that album. I even like the next album. You know, I like the Steve Vai. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, 1987's my era of Whitesnake. Can I just give a shout at anyone who's uh, interested in Whitesnake at that time? The greatest moment in it is a video for Fall for Your Lover, where you have the two guitarists. There's clearly there appears to be some degree of rivalry between solo yeah. off against each other. And Steve Vai just completely sons off Adrian Vanderbilt by chucking the guitar on the floor and playing it like a piano during his solo. <laughs> but also the greatest piece of rock trivia ever is about um, Here I Go Again. Mm. 
because the original lyrics were um, like a hobo I was born to walk alone and the American producer made them change it to drifter because they thought an American audience would think he was singing homo <laughs> Well, there's not a better piece yeah. of rock and roll trip. Oh, also, maybe <laughs> in England, hobo has a kind of romantic connotation. Yeah, yeah. In America, you're just thinking of a guy with no teeth jumping in train tracks. Like I'm not, I'm not sure. It, uh, I'm not sure it translates. And also, the um, I, I did always love um, David Coverdale's sudden change of voice, where he goes from talking like a bloke from Yorkshire to talking like Roger Moore. At some point, between, between 1984 and 1987, he adopts that incredible sort of fruity baritone. And, okay, okay. How can people help you? People can help me enormously we're about two thirds of the way there with the crowdfunding if you go to unbound.com and look for nothing but a good time there is a range of pledging options you can kick in from as little as £10 which just gets you the book uh, there's higher options you can pay more um, but really every little helps at this point so if you're interested in making the book happen without the pledges it isn't going to get written so unbound.com nothing but a good time and uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at Justin Beekwork where I'm posting regularly about heavy metal and pictures of my cats thanks for joining us Justin and another song no, I can't remember anyone who wasn't a musician ever getting two songs on this show oh, this but it is the 100th episode so uh, this is a rare and unique privilege so uh, I want to play out with uh, Dockham and the uh, from the soundtrack to Night- Nightmare on Elm Street 3 the video where they rock so hard they terrorise Freddy Krueger himself no higher metal accolades is Dokken Dream Warriors <laughs>
My name is Jesper. I'm from DAD. I am besides Steve Masper. We are naked. And this is White Line Fever. And it's back into the rock and roll interviews. Next up, we've got Adrian Vandenberg, uh, formerly of Whitesnake, of course. And he's now got his own band, Moon Kings. Um, now, the uh, we didn't record the first few seconds of this interview, so I've had to um, give you a little uh, introduction, tell you what the question was. And the question was about him getting up with Nathan James from Inglorious a few nights before uh, here in London at the Underworld. Uh, it was uh, Nathan James got up uh, for uh, Here I Go Again with Adrian Vandenberg's Moon Kings. Here's what Adrian had to say about that. Nathan, if you had a recommendation for the Good Support Act, hmm. um, because, um, you know, the, the Underworld were putting pressure on it because they wanted to announce the show. And then Nathan uh, advised uh, Switchblade City and uh, Gypsy Heart, and he said, well, I'd love to come up on stage and, um, and jam with Adrian, you know? So, because um, as, as everybody in Britain knows, Nathan is a pretty big Whitesnake fan, so um, apparently it was on his bucket list some way or another to... Um, to do stuff like this, you know. So it was, it was a blast. He's a very nice guy, and uh, as everybody knows, you know, he's a fantastic singer. So, so at, um, when we were jamming to "Here We Go Again," uh, the White Snake track, it was, you know, on this tiny stage in the underworld. Uh, it's probably the smallest stage <laughs> I've, I've played on in a long time, but it's so much fun. Such a great place. It, it was amazing to have two world-class singers on um, on a couple of square meters. You know, it was a lot of fun. And, you, you, and you, their, sorry, their voices their voices really complement each other because they have different timbres. You know, so it it was great when I uh, when I did stuff together at the same time. Um, we started out with Nathan uh, doing two verses, and then. Um, I think they both, if I remember it well, they both did a chorus and then Jan did two verses and then they both went into the screaming bit. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, Jan, um, I guess some singers might get a bit jealous of someone like that coming up for one song, but Jan seems a pretty easygoing sort of guy. <laughs> oh, he is completely, you know. Um, yeah, Jan is, um, uh, rightfully, he's got enough self-confidence, he doesn't care, you know, and same goes for me, you know. I mean, I've, I've played with so many guitar players and I've never seen... I've never looked at music as a competition. I always get a little, well, sometimes even annoyed, you know, when people go, oh, this guy's better than that guy, or that guy's better than that guy. You know, it, it, it's not like the Olympics. You, you can't really, <laughs> there is not, not really a certain way how you could say, not a certain way of measuring how, how you can say some guy's better than the other one, because uh, especially about guitar players, a lot of people, get really, you know, fanatic and anal about it. Uh, they say, oh, you know, uh, John Sykes is better than Vivian Campbell or whatever, you know, and I go, come on, man, you can't really say that, for instance, um, Eddie Van Halen is better than Brian May, for instance, you know, they're both really amazingly great at um, the, the way they express themselves on the guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no, you know, there's no way to measure it. It's, it's um, so the same goes for singers, you know. Uh, I mean, of course, there's lousy singers too. <laughs> uh, but that's, that, that's easy enough, you know. You, you can tell uh, when somebody can hold a melody or has got like a certain range or something. And the rest is up to the way you want to express yourself, you know. You've got guys who scream their ass off and, and are still good in that particular field. And you've got crooners, you know, guys guys that prefer to sing like a uh, Frank Sinatra song or something, hmm. 
you can't you can't really say you know so but but in this case they're both fantastic world-class singers so it was just a blast to have them both on stage you know your answer there led me into two questions i'd written down so i'll start with this one sometimes it feels like would is it true or do you feel that there's some roles in a classic rock band that you can do until you die and there are other roles where you know you've got to struggle you've got to work to keep up your chops and it would appear to be drumming and singing seem to be the toughest things to maintain as, I guess, guys in the bands that we love, you know, that move on in life, you know, like it's a, you know, do you, have you seen that over the years? Is it tougher for guys who, who, who play some instruments or in the case of their voice uh, than others to, to keep up their chops and to, and to stay to st- to stay at their best? Yeah, you know, it's uh, definitely, um, it's interesting, that's actually the first time anybody asked that question. It is, um, uh, obviously, you know, drumming is like the most physical thing in a band, and um, uh, I'm always amazed that a guy like Tommy Aldridge, who's been a professional drummer ever since he was 16, I think, he's still as good as ever, and and he's a very physical drummer, as we all know. Um, At the same time, I'm kind of surprised uh, of guys that used to be, for instance, in Black Sabbath about 80 years ago or something, you know, that they're basically really straight ahead, uh, you could, basic drummers, and, 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 and then some of those guys have got the hardest time to keep up their chops. Um, with vocalists, um, I'm always amazed when I see Steven Tyler at 71, for yeah, instance, yeah. still. <laughs> hitting all the high notes and stuff but we, we um, in my my 13 years with Weissenake we did a lot of shows together especially in the States with uh, Aerosmith and Stephen was always um, uh, very um, solid with his warming up you know he, he used to warm up for like 45 minutes with those lo 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 type of uh, <laughs> <laughs> things you could hear him in the dressing room you know and then he you could hear him go up and up and up and then then he was properly warmed up, and then on stage, you know, he didn't miss a thing. Mm. That's actually a, a title of one of the songs. <laughs> That's pretty coincidental. And um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's like uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a matter of um, taking care of those little vocal cords, cords that are basically muscles mm. uh, that some singers uh, manage better than other ones. I mean, with Jagger, it's it's. Uh, he, he's a mid-range singer, you know. He never went all the way up there, so he still seems to have uh, most of his chops. And physically, the guy is ridiculous, you know. He he really um, shows 22-year-old guys um, how it's done uh, still, you know. And that's really amazing because he's way over 70, you know, by now. So there's yeah. a lot of difference, I, I would think, you know. And, and like I said, I'm not sure whether it has to do with, uh, you know, Keeping up, warming up properly, and pra- keep keep on practicing and stuff. Mm. That's what I try to do with, uh, with with my guitar. You know, I still want to move forward and um, and see if I can find different venues to explore and incorporate new elements in my playing and stuff. And challenge yourself, you know, because there's zillions of incredible guitar players all over the world, mm. especially technically. Mm-hmm. For me, it's always been more important to. Um, to have your own kind of style, you know, your own choice of notes, your own timing and all the stuff. And that's actually what we were talking about before, you know, that, that that's really hard 
it's not to say impossible to compare uh, guitar players in a way of oh, this guy's better than that one, you know, it's just better of taste, I guess. Yeah, it's, I guess if you're a, a, a guitarist or a bass player, you could end up like a sort of old man trading in wives, you know what I mean? You just keep getting younger yeah, singers right. and younger drummers, you know, but uh, I guess you would feel bad sometimes for your friends who who do those things and they, they struggle to keep up. Uh, uh, but what can you do? It's nature, it's ageing, it's, you know, there's nothing you can yeah, do right. about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, what sort of, um, um, what song can we have? First song, Adrian, um, um, and listeners, it's uh, Adrian Vandenberg, of course, who you all know, uh, and the new album is called uh, Mark II from Moon Kings. Um, what's the first song we can play? <coughs> Um, uh, one of my favorites from the, from the, the second Moonkins album is a um, song called um, If You Can't Handle the Heat. Mm. It's definitely one of my favorites. Okay. Is there a story behind it? or? Well, yeah, in a way, because um, it's one of the songs on the album where um, everybody in the band get, gets uh, showcased. Um, mm. It's basically on every song, you know, but on that particular song there is... Um, some jamming going on, just like in uh, another favorite of mine is the song uh, The Fire, where I asked um, the bass player and the drummer just to go berserk in the end section. Uh, originally, I was planning to, uh, with that song, to uh, let their jamming go uh, out in a fade in the, in the, at the end of the song, but they did such an amazing job that I just kept everything in the mix and we don't even end up at the same chord, you know, because it was a total jam. So uh, I, I like that because um, when I was growing up on, on, you know, my favorite British bands like Cream and Zeppelin and, and Free, um, especially with Cream and Zeppelin, there was always a certain element of jamming going on on studio records, which... Um, doesn't happen now anymore, you know, in uh, in rock. It, it happens in jazz, but um, um, so I thought, you know, I'd just do that again on this album because I'm very proud of his band as far as musicianship goes, you know. I think Jan is a world-class singer and Sam and Mart are a world-class bass player and drummer and they inspire me each and every time when I'm on stage, you know. I've got a really hard time to to um, to keep down the grin on my face because when I watch those guys <laughs> Okay, let's listen to that know. song Let's listen to that song Yeah, please, let's do so
Hey guys, this is Adrian Vandenberg from Vandenberg's Moon Kings, formerly a white snake. Uh, turn up the radio, and you have to because I'm talking all the way from Holland, the tiny little post-stamp size country in Europe. Uh, turn up your radio that you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to White Line Fever, and it's the second part of our interview with Robin McCauley, who is in a band which is called Michael Schenker Fest, and they have a new album out called Resurrection. Michael, a lot of the interviews you do, and I did a little bit of research, people want to talk about how you joined this band and how you joined that band and how you met that guy and how you met this other guy. But I'm actually fascinated with the way things are now for you and how um, your life is now, particularly the fact with Rating the Rock Vault, the number of shows you play in a day or can play in a day. And we, do, we all have favourite bands where guys in the band can't quite hit the same heights as they once could. My question is almost like I'd ask an athlete, how do you manage to do that as a singer? How do you manage to keep your chops up and be able to perform, you know, uh, that that often? Um, um, Well, um, right now in Vegas, well, we've been here for... uh I've been here for five years. I don't live in Vegas. I, I live with my family, my wife and kids back in, in California. Um, we uh, we used to perform six nights a week. We perform five nights a week now. We're at the Hard Rock Hotel. We work uh, Saturday through Wednesday. We do one show a night. Um, it's, a, it's a huge cast. There's like 10 people on stage. Um, and it's really our job uh, you know, we have producers, and there's a standard because, you know, uh, with Vegas been, you know, all about entertainment, and uh, it's, a, it's a never-ending wheel of, of, of new people who come to visit all the time, and so if they come to the show, they see it for the first time, so you have a different audience every night, so they want to come and see something that they paid for, and there's an expectancy of, of, of that standard that you, that you have to maintain. Um, so it's our job to uh, take care of ourselves. It's our job to make sure that you keep your voice uh, where it's supposed to be and deliver what it is that the uh, the show, the producers, and the audience expect you to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're all human. We're not machines. Mm. Uh, that's very important to understand that with singers, we're not machines. We can get sick. Uh, we can have off days. Um, so we work uh, particularly hard um, at trying to, you know, uh, get as much rest as you can and keep your chops up, uh, so that you're always on your game. Mm. It's not easy, mm. uh, I can tell you. It's not easy, but, but we managed to do it, and, um, um, that's all I can tell you about it. It's really, it, it's your job and it's your responsibility, you know, and so, so that's what we do. I, I walk every morning for at least two hours every morning. Um, I love exercise. Um, when I'm not talking to you, I don't talk to anybody. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> um, and that's basically what I do. I just basically shut the hell up and um, I just prep myself for showtime. Well, that's a pretty it's boring, really, but uh, but it's what you got to do. It's a pretty solitary life, isn't it? Do you find yourself sending a lot of emails and a lot of texts in lieu of talking? Yeah, that's kind of what we do. I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, Different strokes for different people. Some people can just get out there and just cut whale all the time. It's just it's not my style. So mm-hmm. you know, I do I do what I do. What what works for me, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I want before we play the next song. I just want to ask you about Ireland. Um, just reading your biography on your website, you know, you left Ireland 
expecting to return, and you got as far as London coming back um, from, I think it was Holland, and, and, and you ended up here um, indefinitely at the time and got involved in the band Grand Prix. I just wonder, how often do you get back to Ireland? Um, at, you're from County Neath, I believe. Um, you know, and how connected are you with... Correct. Yeah. How connected are you to the you know, the, the Irish rock scene? And the, do you have uh, a lot of uh, musicians, you know, back there? Or are you, do you feel like a bit of an exile now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm connected in terms of, you know, um, I still have great contact with the, uh, with the Grand Prix guys. Um, I took my... My wife is Austrian. She's from Vienna. Uh, we have twin boys that'll be 19 on uh, Valentine's Day. But for their 18th birthday, we actually took them. We took them back to Ireland. Mm. And um, I still have family in Ireland. I have four sisters still living in London. Quite a big family, you know. I think, I think my dad fell one short of the soccer team, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think he gave up after 10. Um, so, um, um, I like to... Family is really important to me. Um, keeps me really grounded. I love the family because, you know, there's always time for play, but, but uh, at the end of the day, I like to sort of, you know, shut the door and pull the blinds and, and leave that behind me. And and, uh, and there's more to life than music, and I love music. It's a huge, huge part, if not all of my part of my life, but my family is a big part of my life. And um, I'm very blessed to be able to uh, split the time um, I've been married for 24 years, uh, same woman, and um, we, we've been able to work it out. It's not easy when you work in Vegas, you mm. know, <laughs> people go, oh my God, how do you do that? Dude, working in Vegas, dude. But you know, um, uh, I always used to say, and excuse my French on your podcast, but you know, if there's a pile of shit on the road, I have a choice. Do I walk into it or walk around it? Like, so, there you have it. Yeah, yeah, good good philosophy. Okay, let's have an, another song, Robin. What, what have you got for us? Oh, why don't you shoot for the, uh, the first track, Heart and Soul.
white line fever. Going to land down under. Going to turn around the corner way down yonder. <laughs> but I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever. Rock like fuck. That's what I say. Okay, <laughs> come on down and rock on.